This is an ABC podcast. We will never know just how many kids in Australia are being sexually abused. Some estimates put it as high as 8% of boys and 20% of girls. And those rates haven't really changed over the past 30 years. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack, and we're going to look at this huge problem and find out what more you, the community, can do to help. Also coming up, you're going to hear how a young First Nations person is correcting Tassie's history. First, though... Hack. I can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to push people into the workforce. On Triple J. Are you one of the almost 800,000 Australians that's been placed into Workforce Australia? Do you even know what that is? I'm talking about those changes for job seekers that have just come into effect. There's been a big shake-up, and understandably, heaps of you are probably feeling really confused about what's different, what's the same, how you can make sure you don't lose your income support. And I want to know if you're affected by this. What do you reckon? Do you think this is going to make your life easier or harder? You can let me know by sending a message, 0439757555. In a sec, we're going to ask Employment Minister Tony Burke a few questions. But first, April McLennan has more. Trying to navigate Centrelink's old employment service program was a bit like playing squid games. You had to overcome a heap of challenges to try and keep your income support. And while you didn't get killed if you failed to meet the requirements... It may have meant your payment got cut off, which could leave you without money to buy food, run your heater or even pay rent. It is extremely stressful because we're our Centrelink payment, we don't get paid too much, pretty much just the minimum. Sometimes it's just stressful knowing that your payment can be cut off for the two weeks and then what do you have to live off after that? That's Rachel Bender. She's been looking for a job since she finished year 12 last year. And living in Launceston in Northern Tassie, she's found it really difficult to meet the requirement of applying for 20 jobs a month under the old scheme. A lot of the time, it's really hard finding jobs that you're actually qualified for. That was the hardest part, I think. But sometimes I had to put in jobs that I didn't even want to apply for just to meet that quota. But the Australian government's done a major revamp of the Job Active program. It's now called Workforce Australia and Senior Advisor of Employment at the Australian Council of Social Services, Dr Simone Casey, says it's been a pretty radical overhaul. There's been, I suppose, quite a lot of confusion about what the new model means and also quite a bit of confusion about a new way that um, people will be required to report that they are um, kind of meeting their job search requirements and that's called the points-based activation system. So the points-based system has replaced the old arrangement which required job seekers to submit 20 job applications per month. Now to continue receiving payments, you'll need to accumulate 100 points a month. Excellent. 10 points to Gryffindor. You can earn points through activities like applying for jobs, attending interviews or completing training courses, with each task worth a certain amount of points. 
But what if you're living in a super remote area and you've already applied for all the jobs on offer? You can apply to have your points reduced because of the labour market that you're in. The other thing is, is the other activities that you might already be doing that would contribute to the points. So that would include things like if you're already studying um, or if you're already um, volunteering or if you're already doing kind of a range of activities. If you don't meet your points target or complete four job applications each month, you could receive a payment suspension and a demerit. Simone reckons there's still a few kinks to iron out. What's really important is that like when people can't get something to work, when you, you, you haven't got data, your phone's not charged, you can't get somewhere and do things, that you, you, know, you don't get penalised because of that. Uh, and there's quite a few sort of protections that are still needed to make sure that when people can't report things online, uh, that, you know, that it doesn't make life difficult for them and lead to them having their payments suspended. So is Workforce Australia going to be better than the old system? Well, Rachel says the jury's still out on that one. I think it's too early to say. I haven't really tried out the system yet, but I can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to push people into the workforce direction, which is a good idea. Hopefully it goes well. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update. I want to get into this a lot more now with the Employment Minister, Tony Burke. He's with us. Minister, welcome back to Hack. Yeah, g'day, Dave. This new system, it wasn't your idea. These changes were pushed through by the former Morrison government, but you're out there selling it to Australia now as Employment Minister. You've made some tweaks. Can we expect more young people getting into jobs under this scheme? Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to make sure of. So just before we went into caretaker... All the contracts were signed, uh, and the entire software system had been had been built before I was sworn in as minister. So what I'm trying to make sure of is at each stage that we can effectively make sure that wherever I can take pressure off people in how the system operates, that I'm doing so. So yeah, the the big thing first of all was to give everyone a clean slate. The Second thing was to increase how much credit people were getting for different tasks. So there is nothing that, in terms of obligations on people, there is nothing that people have now that is tougher than what they had a week ago. Nothing. But there's a series of areas where individuals now have more control and there's also a series of areas where there can be things that people are doing to get themselves job ready where they didn't used to get credit and they now will. So, yeah, if, can I just give two quick examples of that, if that's okay? Yeah, Dan? and I mean, yeah. studying's probably a big one for people, I'd think. Yeah, okay, so what, used to ha- what was happening with studying was the way the previous government was going to have it happen. You were going to get some credit for study, but not enough, even if you were doing full-time, that you didn't also have to be shooting off applications. Now, my frustration with that was that, well, that means if someone is trying to get job-ready you want them to finish their course. And I didn't want a situation where someone's firing off extra applications knowing that if they, if they score an interview with any of them, then they're going to be missing the exact classes that were meant to make them job ready and the work they've been doing that month effectively falls over. So we've made it so that if you're in full-time study, and this is full-time study on job seeker, so you'll have a lot of full-time students who are, who are on different programs to job seeker. But if you're on full-time study as job seeker, uh, then the app, extra applications 
are suspended for that time. And I think that was just a much more sensible way of dealing with it. The other was to increase how much credit you get if you're undergoing drug or alcohol rehab. So, sure, if you want to keep shooting off 20 applications a month, then the obligations don't change at all. But if you're wanting to to do extra courses or you're spending time doing drug and alcohol rehab, then you can actually get some credit for that that then takes the pressure off in other areas. But people, if they were operating well under the previous system, they can still do that and... Exactly what they were doing. Okay. And and they still qualify for everything. Look, you said that, you know, not all of the issues have been fixed and we've heard from ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Service, that they're a bit worried about some issues that still need to be sorted out. Like if someone might not be able to report online because of where they are, that they're not penalised for that. Like how do you make sure that people in regional remote areas don't lose payments because they might not have reliable access to data or internet, for instance? Yeah, and there's going to have... There, there will be plenty of cases where individual allowance needs to be made uh, and providers can do that uh, and the, the online system can do that and I've made clear to people that I expect those allowances to be made. Now, for the first 30 days, there's absolutely no suspensions anyway and the fact that I've given everyone a clean slate means any of the sort of penalties that can potentially happen in the system are some months away before we need to, to even consider those sorts of issues. Look, there is mixed reaction. Protesters outside your electorate office last week, they were saying they want mutual obligations abolished. They're saying they're sick of people being punished for being poor. What do you say to those people? Yeah, and there are a number of groups in good faith where their view is to have no mutual obligation at all. Uh, Look, I'll just be upfront here. That's not my view. I do think if you're on JobSeeker, there is an obligation to be seeking work. I do think that's a, a fair thing. And so the I don't want it to be done. I don't I don't like the concept where the whole lens of it's punitive and you know, you'll never find me bashing the table and deriding people who are looking for work who are unemployed. Like that's not something you'll find previous ministers of a different government running that sort of game. You'll never find me doing that. But on the principle where some people just say you should be able to get the payment and there should be no obligations on you to engage in different forms of activity, that's not my view. That's not the government's view. Minister, can I ask you about the rate of job seeker? Because everyone knows how tough things are at the moment and Labor has made a big thing of saying they don't want to leave anyone behind. But the job seeker rate's about 40% of the minimum wage and so many experts are saying that's nowhere near enough. We don't need to hear it from experts though because we've got young people telling us here all the time they're struggling. Shouldn't the government be prioritising this increase to job seeker now of all times when young people are under so much financial stress and we know how devastating and really concerning the situation is? Yeah, no... I hear the point. We, for for years, had campaigned for an increase. We got there was a significant increase that happened during the pandemic that stayed. Uh, that said, our position is every time the budget comes round, there needs to be a review of trying to get these rates to the right to the right levels. But isn't this the perfect time? Like because when we come up to elections, it's not an issue that politicians really want to speak about. It's not a popular issue. But Labor's in government now, and as you say, campaigning for a while about seeing an increase. Shouldn't that just be happening now? Well, we've we've got a budget this year. This will be one of the very few years where there are two budgets, and you know, we've said every budget. This is something that we'll review exactly. Exactly where the rate goes to is not something I can, 
I can offer in this interview. It's not not something that's been decided, uh, but it's something that we've made a commitment that we look at every budget. All right. Employment Minister Tony Burke, thanks for coming on Hack. Great to talk to you, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And we are getting a few comments on this one. Somebody says, what about those living in rural towns? They can't apply for more than the same four jobs each month. They can't get to other towns because of poor roads and no public transport. Yeah, there were um, some issues raised about that and the government's saying that people can, you know, apply and tell um, authorities about their circumstances. Another person says, this is just punitive. It's hard to see how this will help people get good jobs. They often talk about the dignity of work, but there's nothing dignified about being forced to take a job just any old job for the sake of getting off support payments. Get up, stand up, show up. It's NAIDOC Week on Triple J. Yeah, it is NAIDOC Week and we're celebrating and recognising the history and culture of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and bringing you profiles of amazing young First Nations people. So happy to be able to do this. And today we're heading to Hobart. It's pretty famous for its ye olde looking streetscape, you know, those old sandstone buildings that line the waterfront. And tourists always want to hear more about that stuff, but sometimes the invisible history doesn't get a look in. It's changing now, though. A young Aboriginal woman, Nunami Sculthorpe Green, has created black-led tours Tasmania. They're walking tours to make sure that Aboriginal perspectives and voices are heard when people learn about Tassie's history. So in her own words, here's Nanami, in Nipaluna, which is Hobart. You can't always see it beneath us here in the, in the mall, but that's actually a water that's been flowing there for thousands of years and begins up on Kunanyi, the mountain that watches over our city and flows out to the Timtimili Minanyi and onto the sea. So this water, like I said, has been flowing for thousands of years and it was a very important source of fresh water to the Moonina people that lived along these banks. Although its path has since been covered up and diverted, its presence and centrality remain, as do Aboriginal stories in the city. My name is Nanami Sculthorpe Green. I'm a Palawa and Walpuri woman, so I grew up in Hobart, Nipaluna. I was working at uh, Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery while I was at uni, and I was just learning a lot more detail, sort of the dark history of Lutruita, Tasmania, like um, the Black War like specifically and I was realising that a lot of these places that things happened were actually right where I was walking and living every day in the city and I was like what does everyone know this like everyone should know this and then I sort of I sort of sat with me for a long time and I was talking to other community members about me like yeah did you know this and this and I'm sort of adding to the story was just getting bigger and bigger over the year we sort of crafted this um, research that I had and the stories that I wanted to tell into something that was um, it is like a, a walking tour, but it's just like a little bit richer. Most tourist offerings in um, Hobart and Tasmania are very um, colonial centred if they're about history. So it's all like white colonial stories um, are just the sort of dominant narrative that you'll see and all these like, you know, what they say, um, settler stories and stuff, which just isn't, it really was excluding our people for a long time. So Takunupaluna is the only Aboriginal walking tour in the city and one of only a couple in the whole state. It ties back to our community today. So every single story I tell, it links to our people today and the things that we achieve and, and go through and the things that we struggle against. So it's a bit of a deeper experience than a lot of the other ones you see are walking uh, around. 
So the um, tour itself follows the story of 40 of our old people, so members of the Big River and Oyster Bay people, and that's the core story that we follow. And it's at the end of the war in um, Lutruita, so the, the Black War, after our people were fighting for over 30 years. So the story that we follow is them walking into town to meet the governor to end the war. So we follow their journey into Hobart on this day in 1832, and then we tie that to the walk that we follow today. And I think it is essential because story in Tasmania and right across um, the mainland about our people is that our people didn't exist. And so these stories were really covered up. And so now I'm going to tell people, this is like our stories, this is what our community has been through, and this is all that we've achieved in spite of these things. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, Nanami Skullthorpe Green there on Muanina Country. And thanks to our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, who produced that story. And you can check it out yourself. Black Lead Tours next time you're in Hobart. Definitely worth a look. Hack. As a child, I didn't tell my story because I didn't know I had the choice. On Triple J. Yeah, I want to start off with a trigger warning for this one. We're about to speak about child sexual abuse. If this might raise some issues for you, could be a good idea to switch off for the rest of Hack. There's been a lot more talk about child sexual abuse in recent years, thanks to a royal commission and, of course, former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. But even though we're talking about it more, the problem is still extraordinarily huge. One of the biggest issues is that children often don't know how to explain what's happening to them. And so a new campaign has just been launched to listen to survivors and inform the community to put the onus on the community, on all of us, to get better at recognising issues, to report them when we notice something and to protect kids. Emma's project has been set up by experts and Emma Harkinson, a a child sexual abuse survivor. She's 22 and she's now a really passionate advocate for child protection and she's with us now. G'day, Emma. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Like so many children, you were abused by somebody known to you and your family, someone trusted. At the time that that happened, did you understand what was happening? No, I didn't understand, and that was for a number of reasons. For starters, my body really just shut down. I don't think I could say I was totally conscious all of the time. And so that combined with, you know, the post-traumatic stress kind of symptoms made everything just incredibly confusing. I also didn't know what sexual abuse was. Like, that's such an adult term, right? And being hurt to me was being yelled at, being pushed over, kids laughing at me. That's not what was happening to me. So if someone wasn't yelling at me and because it was someone trusted and respected by my parents and my community, all of that means that I couldn't help but feel like the fear, the discomfort and the pain that I felt, even the hatred that I felt was my problem and that maybe I had done something wrong. That must be a real issue for so many children, especially young children, because it is, as you say, really traumatic. But at the time, it's just really confusing. Totally. I think that we really do a disservice to children when we assume that they'll just come to us with this fully formed idea of what's happened. You know, even if we ask children if someone hurt you or if someone makes you feel unsafe, there are so many different factors coming into what children are going to say in response to those things that we don't think about. And a lot of it comes down to, at least for me, 
I wanted to be a good girl and to not get in trouble. And so to say that I hated someone or to say that someone who was really respected was someone that I didn't like at all was just never going to happen, even if the words that were being asked were technically the correct questions. So did that have an impact on how you explained this to your family? What was that process like? How long did it take? It took years to actually properly tell them. When I first tried at the time that I was being abused by this woman, because it was a woman who was abusing me, all I said that was that she was weird and that was the best I could do. And when that kind of breadcrumb wasn't picked up and I just, my parents didn't think of anything of it. So I just never said anything else because I felt like, well, I just won't try that again. And I don't know how to express it any other way because there's just too much going on. So it took, you know, after years of weekly therapy, it was actually my psychiatrist who told my parents because I like drip fed her little bits and pieces of disclosure to see what she would say and to see if she would think I was insane or if she would believe me. So when she believed me and then she told my parents and they also believed me, that was, you know, it was horrifying to even hear people talking about it, but it was a huge step forward for me. And this is one of the big problems, right? Because in those years where nobody knew, they're years where you could have been getting some help and you weren't able to, right? And so this is about making sure that children are helped when they're children, not just when they might be able to speak about it, which could be a lot later on. Yeah. So my parents were really good in that I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety really soon after the abuse started for you know obvious reasons. And the symptoms of what was happening were treated, which was great, but you can only do so much before actually kind of getting to the root of why I was feeling that way. And so that meant that I ended up self-harming and falling down this spiral that I couldn't get out of until I actually could share what was happening. The onus is always on the child to come forward and speak out about what's happened. And this is across the board when it comes to survivors of abuse, not only children, but often, as you've just described, children don't have the words to describe it. They're confused. They're scared. They don't want to appear like they've done something wrong. What kind of responsibilities on the community to not only identify things that could be happening, but making sure that they're going forward and reporting it and taking action? The entire burden has to be on adults. You know, we just, we can't expect children to disclose abuse. That sounds like maybe a strange thing to say, but it's just a really dangerous assumption. If a child is being abused, they're exhausting their entire being just by surviving. Like that's all that we can expect from them. And that's already too much to have to expect from a kid. So adults need to know, you know, what does a child look like if they're experiencing major trauma? We have to know that if kids are being, you know, defiant or naughty, that's actually probably because something's wrong. Kids aren't bad. They're just struggling and we need to listen to them. There's so much work to do around that and even with getting kids to be believed by adults. So this brings us to the initiative that you're helping launch. It's called Emma's Project. What's that about? The project exists to centre the wisdom of victim survivors in efforts to protect children. 
So much of what we do on a societal level to protect kids is based on really theoretical work rather than lived experience. And that's just never going to be as effective. So we've launched as the starting point, a national survey where survivors can tell us anything that they wish was done differently at the time of their abuse, things that they could have been told, things that could have been done or done differently. So for me, as an example, I desperately want every parent and adult to stop telling their kids that it's rude to not give someone a hug hello. Because at the time, you know, I was being told that it was rude not to hug the person who was abusing me. So what was I supposed to do behind closed doors when that person was sexually abusing me? There's just some of our actions that we don't necessarily think about that much are so totally in opposition to the messages that we think we're telling our kids about what they can say no to. Look, Emma, so many people are going to be able to relate to your story. There's going to be a whole heap of others that will have just learned so much from you. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences, but also your work and your advocacy with us here on Hack. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. Emma Harkinson there. And if this has raised issues for you, remember you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Brave Hearts is also another good service. service sorry, It offers counselling and support for survivors of child sexual abuse. They're on 1800 272 831. So Emma teamed up with the Australian Childhood Foundation for this project. It's a group that's focused on child protection. And Dr. Dr. Joe Tucci is the CEO of the Australian Childhood Foundation and he's with us now. G'day, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks, Dave. It's nice to be here. Look, there are probably people out there thinking child sexual abuse, huge problem in the old days, but things have changed a lot in recent years. How big of a problem is child sexual abuse in Australia today? It's still a very big problem. And I think what we heard about in the Royal Commission that happened a few years ago, they focused a lot on stories about kids who have been sexually abused in institutions like churches and sporting clubs. And there was a lot of emphasis on historical abuse. But the reality is most child sexual abuse occurs in a family, in a neighbourhood, by people that children know. And the rates of child sexual abuse in Australia haven't really changed at all over the last 20 to 30 years. So it's still as big a problem as people tend to think it is. Yeah, wow. I mean, you've done a fair bit of research into the community's views on recognising, reporting abuse. It's really interesting what you've found. What are some of the revealing results there? Well, when you ask the community where they rate child abuse as a problem, and they generally rate it lower than roads and footpaths. They rate it last on a list of community concerns. And you have to you have to remind people about child abuse in order for it to go from last to first. Why do you think that is, that people rate it so low when most people are horrified by the thought of it? I think that because we don't want to believe that it happens in and around our own families and communities. We want to kind of believe that it's happening somewhere else and that somebody is doing something about it because it's very confronting for us as a community to think about the idea that children are being hurt by the very people that are supposed to be looking after them. That undermines a lot of confidence that we have in families as an institution. So I think that's why we tend to put it outside of our kind of awareness. 
And the real, and then what happens is that that translates into the way that people believe children or not. So one of the other findings that we we have made over that we've found over the last eighteen years that we've been doing that research is that one in three adults would not believe a child if they disclosed abuse to them. So a lot of people are saying in the community, yeah, I feel you know, a bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure whether I would step forward and say something if I suspected something was happening. This project, this initiative that you've got going on, Emma's project, obviously hoping to change that. You're saying it's kind of an Australian first. Why is that? Well, people with lived experience, lived and living experience of child sexual abuse survivors, they've been calling for decades for their voice their experience to make a difference to the way that the community and adults step up to protect children now. And for a whole variety of reasons, we haven't listened to them. And this is one of the first times we think that um, a project like this is going out and inviting people who have either survived child sexual abuse or their family members or people, professionals who are working in the field and asking them to be part of a survey that has a small number of questions, but really a targeting, trying to get the expertise of those people to help us to understand what adults should know, what adults should be able to recognise in children when the abuse is occurring, and then what's the best thing for them to do to support kids and protect them at the time. Well, really important issue. And as you say, Dr. Joe Tucci, um, not only important that we speak about it, but that we take action as well. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. It's NADOC week on Triple J. It's time to get up, stand up and show up on Hack. A big thanks to both Emma Harkinson and Dr. Joe Tucci from the Australian Childhood Foundation for their time. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.